hey, I love this. Um, so so uh, I'm Trey. I'm, I'm the pastor, lead pastor here. Um, Bob, yeah, yeah, thank you. Okay, yeah, all right. I exist. It's worth it. Oh, woo. Great. Uh, <laughs> Um, so thankful. I, I, I wasn't here last week because uh, during the week, you know, when I would have to have prepared a message to give on Sunday, uh, I was in Portland at um, Western Seminary. I'm doing like a doctoral program. I did a class along with Ryan Gilbert, actually, all about uh, sex, sexuality, gender, you know, really straightforward things. Um, and I was, it was really great, um, and it was really a good time just to think through that with, with some uh, on, a, on a high level, and I look forward to taking some of that over the next couple months and, and bringing that out uh, here in our, in our teaching ministry, uh, because I think it's really important that we talk about these things, because it's a big issue. There's, there's a lot going on about what do, we, what do we believe and stuff like that. So look forward to that. That'll probably be in the fall, and we'll be teaching more on that. Um, but Bob filled in for me, one of our elders. I love Bob, and he had an awesome message on faith, and it got me so excited because he brought his youth pastor energy, as he said, and I, I like that. Our, Bob, our, our 69-year-old youth pastor, is that right? I love it. It's, it's, nothing. Yeah, what's that? 70. Made it over the line. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. Um, love having Bob and Judy in I-90 because um, like, when I think of them, I just think of faith. You know, there are people who are full of faith, and that is, is so exciting. Um, I think about what makes the church work, right? How it functions as an organization. And, um, you know, there's all kinds of different people, different people who have different passions. Bob and Judy are, like, passionate about faith, they're passionate about prayer. You guys are all, like, passionate about different things. I'm probably more of, like, a, a, a teaching theology nerd, right? That's my passion is nerdery. Um, you know, but that's okay. That's, that's part of everybody contributes in different ways, you know, brings different gifts. And when we all come together, then we feel passionate about the things of God and we're able to pursue what he has. It is a beautiful design for what the church is meant to be when we all come together and bring our gifts and bring our callings and bring our unique purpose. And then we're able to fulfill and be, be complete as people in Christ. It is awesome. I think of Ephesians 4, 15, speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. For him, from him, the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament promotes the growth of the body for the building itself up in love for the proper working of each individual part. Parts of the body don't work without each other. Uh, they don't get maintained. They don't get cared for. They don't get a proper, proper attention that they need. And so, so we're called to faith by others, we're called to like, study the word by others, called to prayer by others, uh, called to you know, just seek the, the wisdom of the Lord by other people. You know, it's an awesome plan that God has for us when we all come together. And Bob's message really got me thinking about faith a lot. It got me thinking about um, what we were going to be turning into here in, in Acts. Uh, we finished up towards the end of 15, right? And as, and as I thought about it, I actually think that this passage is, is really just a passage all about faith. It's really just a passage pointing us to how essential faith is for the ongoing message of the church. So, so, so let's just um, pick up where we're in Acts 15, 36. And we're, we've been going through the book of Acts and been looking at just kind of the development of the early church and what's going on here. Um, and what's, here we are in 1536, Paul and Barnabas, they've just come back from, from, Ante, from, from, uh, from Jerusalem, back to Antioch, and they just had this council with the apostles, and they've kind of been settling some issues, and we'll talk about those as we come along here. But they gather back together in Antioch, and this is where we pick up. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they're doing. And Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. 
But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. And Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And he was traveling through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches." So earlier in Acts 15, like we talked about two weeks ago, uh, Barnabas uh, and Paul, along with the apostles, along with the Pharisees, who are Christian Pharisees, who knew, um, they agree to some sort of a compromise about some theological issues that they were dealing with. But here, we see no compromise whatsoever. There's, there's, there's a sharp disagreement between these good friends, these brothers who had, had been going out and serving and, and went out and brought the gospel to the Gentile world, to the non-Jewish world. Uh, and they're now in disagreement because Paul uh, has suggested that they go ahead and set out again and go visit all the churches that they went to to visit and to preach the gospel in before. They want to visit those churches um, all throughout Asia Minor. And Barnabas has this idea that they should bring along John Mark, this guy named John Mark, a young man. But Paul thinks that's a terrible idea. Why? Well, because John Mark uh, came along with them, at least tried or sort of went along with them for the first journey that they went through. But as things were really starting to heat up, he just suddenly decides that he's had enough. We see that in Acts 13, 13. It says, Paul and his companions, they set sail for Pathos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. But John, John, John Mark, left them and went back to Jerusalem. He's just about to get on to everything that God has called them to. Just about to do this awesome like missionary journey where they're just, just going to, to have a, a, a crazy outpouring of God's spirit and his work. And then he decides he's just going to go back to, to Jerusalem. And, and so when Barnabas suggests, hey, let's bring John Mark along. Let's give him another try. Paul is just not going to have any of it. He puts his foot down. He says no to the point where uh, Barnabas, um, you know, my, my favorite Bible character, and Paul just split ways. Here's a question. It's a question to really think about. Who was right? Who was right in this argument? You know, Paul, I mean, he's like, he's right about everything, right? He wrote a lot about, I mean, you can't, can't disagree with Paul. He wrote like, you know, 10% of the Bible. But Barnabas, I mean, he's like a good guy. So who, who was right in this dispute? Um, it's, it's a tough question. It's a, it's a question I've thought about for years. It, it's a hard question for me because, again, like I said, Barnabas is actually my favorite Bible character. I just, I just like him a lot. I just like, would want to hang out with Barnabas. I just choose him of all the... Oh, Jesus, and then Barnabas. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But after Jesus, I'd want to talk to Barnabas. Um, I think we see the world the same way. So I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to Barnabas, because Barnabas, he kind of saw this potential in John Mark. Sure, he had kind of failed, but he saw potential in him. But Paul, either, either he didn't see potential, or, or he didn't think the potential in this instance, in this very urgent instance, was enough. You know, like, like we needed something deliverable. We needed something that, that was manifest, not just potential. But whatever Paul thought about John Mark, we don't really get the reasons why. He, he certainly thought that what was needed for this moment to go back among the churches, to go back into Asia, and then actually to Europe in an unplanned sort of way, as we're going to see in a second, what was needed was faith. And John Mark didn't have it yet. 
Because, because the fact is that they are right on the cusp of this huge move of God. They were right on this cu- the cusp of this move where thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, would come to the Lord through this ministry, bringing the gospel to places it had not been yet. A big thing was going to happen, but John Mark walked away and he went back to Jerusalem because he just couldn't see it. He didn't have the faith to see what was going on. He couldn't see what God was doing. And what is faith but having eyes and ears to listen and perceive as to what God is doing in the world? To me, that's a functional definition of faith. It's to just pay attention to God. Know he exists. Follow after him. Act as if he really is doing something. He really is working and he really is moving. But John Mark went back to Jerusalem. John Mark went back to Jerusalem. He couldn't see, actually, that what God was doing was bringing Jerusalem to the whole world. Jerusalem means city of peace. God was pouring out peace. He was establishing a new kingdom, bringing it forward into the whole world. John Mark didn't have to go back to Jerusalem to be comfortable, to know God, to be blessed. He could have brought the blessing of God into the whole world and been a part of that, but he went back to the place where he was much more comfortable because he was pushing into some kind of unknown world and he couldn't go there or didn't want to. John Mark couldn't see it, or maybe he just wouldn't see it. I was listening to a, to a podcast the other day. I know I say that. I do. Um, and I heard this little phrase, and it was sort of like political, so just forget any political connotation you might hear from this. This little phrase, but it really like struck me. It kind of made me stop for a second. And, and, and the guy said that sometimes when, when we have a lot of privilege, we become oblivious. He called it the obliviousness of privilege. That was the phrase. I was just like oh man, the obliviousness of privilege, that really convicted me. Because John Mark, he had privilege, right? I mean, he had a privilege. He was, he was a Jew. He was not only just like, 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 so like Jew, like somebody who knew about God's plans in the world because he had the scriptures. He had, he had an understanding of what God was doing. He had a, he had a privileged place in the world, right? You know, front row seat to what God was doing in Jerusalem in those early days. Like actually, when when, when um, Uh, when Peter gets out of jail, he goes to John Mark's house, John Mark's mom's house, right? Because John Mark is there, and he's in this early community. He's a part of this early move of God in Jerusalem. He's he's seeing it. He's seeing what God's doing all around. He's seeing how God is just transforming people, pouring out life, pouring out grace, pouring out mercy. John Mark is a privileged guy because he sees what God is doing. But he is at least in this moment, when he goes back, he is oblivious to God's plan because he's good. Jerusalem was a comfortable place for him. So yeah, God, God had blessed me in that place. Like It was a privileged place to be. Like So why not just enjoy that privilege? Why go out and why partake in what God is doing more broadly outside of my comfort zone because I'm really comfortable here and it's okay to be oblivious? He had a privilege of knowing the Lord, but he didn't see that God was moving and doing something more broadly outside of Jerusalem. He had his Jerusalem, he had his peace, his city of peace, his little walled city that was safe, but God was unleashing a river of mercy and grace and power and his word and knowledge of who he is that would flow to all people in all the known world, but John Mark would prefer to build a dam where God was unleashing a river. 
Revelations 23, uh, Revelation 23, uh, 1 through 3, that, that S always sneaks in there. Did you hear that S? I know it's not, there's not an S in there. You know there's not an S, but I say Revelations, but it's Revelation. <sighs> Sorry. I don't, th- don't want you to think that I don't know that. That's, that's pride, in case you were curious. Um, Revelations, I'm just going to do it on purpose, bad. Revelations, <laughs> okay, I'm going to spit it out, I swear. It's, you already read it. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. And the tree of life was on either side, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. And there will no longer be any curse. At the end of the book of Revelation, we have this picture of what God is finally doing in the world and its total fulfillment. And it's not just blessing the city of Jerusalem. It's that there is from the Lamb, from God himself, a river flowing to the whole world to bless all of the nations and to bring to, to end the curse and heal all things. See, God's ultimate plan for the end of history is to bring all things back to himself under Christ. God's ultimate plan is to pour out so much love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness that faraway people are brought near. He is doing a work to draw people to himself. He is pouring out a river of grace, and that is what he's doing even right now. He's doing the things to bring about this final destination, this final thing. God is pouring out, like a river, his word, knowledge of himself, revealing himself to all people. And he desires that people would see and know and understand. I just, I just like, I think we just, like that, that image of a river, like really just struck with me, like I need to know what a river is for, how God designed rivers. Because the truth is that we can use rivers a lot of different ways, right? What, what do we do with rivers? We can make dams, make reservoirs so that we'll have enough for tomorrow and the next day because we can't trust that the river's going to just keep flowing. Or we could take even the power of a dam. We went, we, my family and I went, went to the Grand Coulee Dam uh, a couple weeks back when we were in eastern Washington. And, you know, what do they do? They, they built this dam on a river and then electrified it. They turned it into something else. They used the power of that source flowing through. This natural source that God has designed used it for another purpose. And I'm not, I'm not an ecologist. I'm just not making a point about the environment or anything like that. You know, I mean, you, you could go there. But that's not, that's not the point of the image, right? But I'm just saying, like, God has designed rivers to flow through the land, to water the land, to bring life and peace and sustain it. But we have the power to take what God has designed for the good of all things and all creatures in his world, and we can hoard it to ourselves and turn it into something else and use it for our own benefit, not for what God designed it. Again, not an ecological point. I'm not anti-progress or technology or anything like that. But when it comes to the spiritual life, I think we have to understand what the Lord is doing because if we don't understand what the Lord is doing, bringing water, life, peace, sustenance, like reconciling all things to himself, then we will become so oblivious to God's purpose that we will take what he's doing and turn it for our selfish benefit. I will do that every day unless I have the faith 
to understand what the Lord is doing. Revelation 22:17 ends with this call. It says, both the spirit and the bride, the bride being the church of God, say, come. Let anyone who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of the life freely. The Spirit is crying that out, come. Whoever would come and have life and peace. Whoever would come and be reconciled to God, come, take, drink. Thirsty people, cut off people. That's what the Spirit's doing. And Revelation tells this thing of what what is the bride of Christ, the church, going to be doing? They're saying it right along with the Spirit, come. The purpose of the church, the purpose of God's revelation is that we might become people who are saying along with the Spirit, come to the whole world, come to the whole world. You're thirsty, you're dry, you're cut off. Come. Not come and give 10%. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> not, not come and, and you know, uh, I don't know, vote left, right. Not come and, uh, you know, have a safe, secure, protected sort of cultural space for you. But come, anyone who desires the water of life, take it freely. We have to have faith. Faith will let us see what the Lord is doing in the world. And what he's doing is he's pouring out grace. He's reconciling. He's forgiving. He's drawing people in. And I don't want to be too hard on John Mark. (laughs) And I, I, I certainly don't think Barnabas didn't either, right? But I think we just need to understand this one thing about faith. This is one thing about perceiving what God is doing. When God's people don't have faith to see what the Lord is doing, it costs everyone something. Everybody pays a price, not just the people who don't hear, but John Mark paid a price. He didn't, his front row seat, he got to be a second, third, fourth row, you know, he, 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 was called to be a part of what God was doing and he still has a place to play. You know, God doesn't, doesn't forsake him. He doesn't throw him away. God doesn't do that to people. But we don't hear from him much after this. That's okay. It cost him something. It cost John Mark a front row seat, and it cost the mission that God was doing something as well. Let's keep reading. Uh, Paul went on to Derby and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek And the brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, and so he took him. So Paul sets out, and and along the way, he meets a young man, a young man named Timothy. And he says, okay, I don't have a John Mark, but I want to bring somebody along with me. And this Timothy guy, I want to bring him along with me for the journey. So what, what did Timothy have that John Mark lacked? Well, we actually know a good bit about Timothy uh, because Paul addresses some letters to him. We have them in in, in part of the the Bible. Um, We know uh, from those letters some biographical details about about Timothy. You know, they're addressed to him, and so he's addressing to to, to his particular circumstances. Um, And so he focuses on Timothy's qualifications in some of those letters. So, for example, in 2 Timothy uh, 1, 5, and 6, he says this, writing to Timothy, Paul writing to Timothy, he says, I recall your sincere faith, 
that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. So, so we, we think about what does Paul think of when he thinks about Timothy, what uniquely qualifies Timothy to be a part of God's plan to, to go with him on this journey. It's that he has this sincere faith the faith that lived in his grandmother and his mother and now lives in him. And Paul is just saying, rekindle that thing, make it powerful because that's gonna be the thing that's gonna lead you on and keep you faithful to what God is doing. If you hold this faith dearly and you rekindle it, the the, the calling that you've been given in the Lord, then you'll be safe. So why Timothy and not John Mark? Well, Timothy had faith. And throughout his letters, he reminds Timothy of the faith he's had. You know, in another time, Timothy, uh, 1 Timothy 6.1, he says, Timothy, guard what's been entrusted to you. Guard what's been entrusted to you. I, I honestly don't know, um, if, 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 I'm, if I'm really frankly honest about my life, my spiritual life, I'm not sure how much guarding I'm doing. How about you? Uh, so last week, this isn't a pity party. This is just my life and it's sermon illustrations. That's all my life is, just sermon illustrations. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a problem. <laughs> um, so my car broke down. You want to know why? Because it was down three and a half quarts of oil, which is a lot of quarts of oil. There's only four and a half quarts in a car. <laughs> so that's like a significant percent. Because um, it turns out I just had this oil leak, didn't smell it, didn't see it, but it was really bad, apparently, right? Bad enough that I was, was driving along after lunch, happy on Monday. Oh, yeah, going to do something. All right, wonderful. And then, you know, that sort of thing. And you think, is the car going to blow up? Didn't blow up, but it didn't really go very fast either. So pulled off to the side of the road, and um, it turns out, yeah, that it's, it's done. It's done. So car's done. It's, it's still sitting out there, but it's not going to move. <laughs> for a little while. Um, the engine shot. It had a low, it was low on oil, um, and the, I'm not a mechanic. It's, this is, yeah, actually, this is the reenactment that we did here. Right? We hired this actor, and I didn't just steal this off the internet. This was a real, yeah, no. Um, I'm not a mechanic. I don't really know that much about cars, but I do know this. They need oil. <laughs> they don't work very long without it. I know this now for sure. I sort of conceptually knew it before. Without faith, your spiritual life ceases. In the same way that without oil, your engine will seize. If you can't get past the obliviousness of privilege and know that God is doing something, something bigger like, like that you, if you can't like get past your circumstances and look to what God is doing, like I, I think you're at risk of not guarding what's been entrusted to you. It's a, it's a risky proposition to try to do the Christian life without faith, without looking past yourself, looking past your circumstances, and looking to what the Lord is doing. You need to guard what's been entrusted to you. It is the engine of your life. Your faith is the thing that's going to keep you going. And you need to, like you would fill your engine with oil if there's a leak, if you knew there was a leak. (laughs) I'm telling you there's a leak. Uh, If you knew that there was a leak, you need to keep filling it with oil. That is guarding what's been entrusting to you. It is rekindling the gift that God has given to you. 
But a lot of us, and again, like I think I fall into this category myself, we just don't know how to do that. <laughs> I'm not talking about the oil, though I know some of you guys don't know how to add oil to your car. And again, YouTube is helpful. Um, we, we don't know how to do that spiritually. Probably a lot of us don't know how to add oil to our car engine, but it's, the thing is, it's not, it's not really that hard. It's really not that hard. So too with your faith. It, you need to build it up, you need to care for it, but it's really not that hard. So but let's consider the question, how do we grow in faith? How do we uh, guard what God has protected? How do, or what God has entrusted to us, how do we rekindle our faith and grow in it, like maintain it? Well, I think actually our text gives us some clues, okay? And the first one is pretty weird, so just, just be with me on it for a little bit, because you're going to be like, I'm not sure what you're trying to tell me, okay? So it'll become apparent why this is a problem in just a second, okay? All right, so here's the first part back in the text. Uh, so he took Timothy and circumcised him. Okay, but again, hold with me. Bear with me. I'm not, I, this is not my advice to you. He, he took Timothy and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled through the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the Gospels and the elders of, at Jerusalem for the people to observe. And so the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers." Just to catch up on some context, right? They're talking, they're referring to the, the gathering of, of the apostles in Jerusalem. Um, and this is just from Acts 15, earlier in Acts 15. We talked about it two weeks ago because there was an argument that was kind of playing out in Antioch and really throughout all the churches. Um, it's that there was a group of people there were very religious Jews who had come to faith, so they were observing all the laws, including circumcision and all the other food laws and all the, the things related to Judaism, right? They're people of, of a Jewish background and Jewish culture, but they see all these non-Jews coming into the kingdom and getting saved and having a relationship with Jesus. Um, and, and these people, these Pharisees, the party of the Pharisees, really, they believe that what, hap- what these, Jew- these non-Jewish believers now have to do is start to practice the Jewish laws, that they need to be circumcised, and they need to start doing all these things that they're doing because they're culturally Jewish. And they say, well, well Jesus did those things because he was culturally Jewish too, right? And so there's an argument. And, and Paul and Barnabas don't like this argument at all. They don't, they don't, they don't believe that the, that the Gentiles should have to do the whole law of Moses thing. So, so they decide to take this argument to the apostles in Jerusalem because the apostles are, you know, people who are walking with Jesus, and they're kind of the deciders. They're sort of the, the leadership council of the church, and if there's an, an argument or a question of doctrine, then it would go to these uh, apostles in Jerusalem. And what they do is they, they gather together, and they pray, and they're just seeking the Spirit. They're debating this question, not in a harsh way, but in an open way, kind of asking the Lord to lead and and what they perceive um, through James and, and through Peter is that the Lord is asking them to, to compromise, to find this compromise, this kind of middle way. They decide they're not going to put the, the obligation of circumcision on unbelievers, but they do ask the unbelievers to do a couple things. They talk about sexual immorality, to abstain from sexual immorality, to abstain from eating food sacrificed to idols, to obtain, obtain uh, to not eat food that's been strangled, and to avoid contact with blood. Um, but this compromise is a little strange. 
because, because on the one hand, the apostles are agreeing with, with Paul and Barnabas. The Gentiles really don't need to or have no obligation to follow the law. They don't need to be circumcised. But at the same time, yeah, they're just asking them to accommodate a little bit the, the scruples of the religious Jews. So what's happening? What's happening is that the apostles are trying to, they're trying to define and create a church where there can be two priorities, one, unity in the church, but also allowing for a difference of conscience, difference of conviction about what is God calling them to, right? Because these Jews really feel strongly, this is what we have to do. But these Gentiles don't feel so strongly about that. And I mean, it's complicated especially because the religious Jew was convicted in their conscience that they had to follow the law, but the Gentile had no such conviction. But the thing about Judaism... The thing about Judaism is that um, it wasn't kind of like a very individualistic culture like ours, where we just say, oh, well, I'm just right with God, and I'm going to be concerned about myself. There was a sense that it's not like just me and God. In Judaism, it was God and us. It was God and us. To the point where, like, if a religious Jew touched someone who was themselves ritually unpure because they'd touched a dead body or had some blood on them or something like that. I don't know what doctors did. I just, no. But anyways, they would have thought that they would become unpure, which creates a problem for the person, right? Because it creates a system where effectively uh, the, the religious Jews would either have to violate their conscience and, and think that this was okay, which they clearly couldn't get to that point, or they would just have to be separated from the Gentiles. And so the compromise is aiming to maintain the unity among these people and also preserving the conscience of both. So you don't want to put an obligation on the Gentiles because they don't have this conviction that the Lord needs them to do that. The Lord sent the Holy Spirit upon them. God seems fine with them. So why should they have to go and do all these things? But at the same time, they want to accommodate the conscience of, of, of these religious Jews. So what does this have to do with your faith? I would argue everything. We, I, don't know, I don't know what happened, but if, if you read Paul, conscience is a theme in like 25% of his actual paragraphs. He, he is talking a lot to the church about watching over their conscience. He thought it was very essential for the life of faith, for maintaining your engine to keep a clean conscience. He tells Timothy that, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you instructions in this, keeping with the prophecies previously made about you, so that by recalling them, you might fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and have shipwrecked their faith. So the consequence of a not well-maintained consequence is the shipwrecking of your faith. That is pretty intense. Faith is a matter, right? It's a matter of knowing God, 
but also believing God and that the things he says about himself are true. It's a matter of knowing and believing that the God who created all things is, is alive and present and working, has a plan that he's put his Holy Spirit in you so that he can manifest his presence in your life and that you can enjoy all the fullness of life with him. Faith is this whole vision of you walking into a life with God when before you were separate cut off from him. It's not just, oh, I'm forgiven, I don't stink as much. It's, not only don't you stink, but you are clothed, perfumed even. You smell good because you are adopted into the family and you have a life with God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, don't you know that your body, your body, your life, the place that you live in is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. So, so, so Timothy is, is circumcised to preserve the conscience of these religious Jews because he couldn't come teaching and instructing them unless he was accepted by them, and they would have trouble accepting someone who, who doesn't think like them. It's kind of a weird thing for us to think about because we're super individualistic. And so this, this idea is hard, um, but it's really, it's, it's not about moralism in this instance, right? Paul isn't saying you got to get circumcised because you have to get circumcised. He's saying, look, if you want to be heard, if you want to be doing what this, the Lord has in, in preserving the unity and building a church where conscience is allowed, then I need you to get circumcised. And Timothy says, eh, sure. I, I, I assume the discussion was easy. Might have taken some convincing. I don't know. See, but God is not a moralist, right? That's not God's nature. God's law is not moralistic to its end. It's not just God wants us to do things, and so he makes a bunch of rules so that we'll do him. God is not a moralist. He's a relationshipist. I made that up. Uh, that's to say, God doesn't just write some laws so that you'll be good with me. But he said he, he invites sinners, like far off people, to come in and to have and to know all of him to even to the point of where your body, your life, becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. Through relationship, God transforms people. And, I mean, we have to tend this relationship. Get it? We have to tend this relationship because the faith we have is not that, well, because Jesus gave me a bath, I don't stink. It's, it's that, again, we have this whole life with God. But I think it's worth noting as much as keeping a clean conscience is not about taking liberties that you don't have, it's also accept about accepting the privileges that you do have as a child of God, as somebody who has this new life. Um, see, we tend to think of conscience in terms of its negative function. The negative function of conscience is, I feel bad when I've done something wrong, Right? We, we accept that, the role of conscience, very easily. We all can relate to that. But conscience is vital for faith. The preservation of conscience is vital for faith because it also has a positive function. Not only does it tell me what I shouldn't do, it tells me what I should do. The conscience is how I define and understand what's my calling in life. What are the good things that I'm invited into? So we think of God and we think, oh, he's a moralist. He says no a lot. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible says yes. All the promises of God are yes and amen. 
He says yes all the time. And if we don't have a clean conscience before God, we can't actually understand his yes. We might think we understand his no, but actually oftentimes that's just guilt, which is not the same as conviction and conscience. But we need to preserve our conscience because the Lord can start to work with it if we have a seared conscience. If we start, stop being concerned about what God cares about, then we're going to be stuck. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, therefore, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. Have you ever thought about the fact that you actually could be pleasing to God? I think so many of us are just like, oh, I'm just the worst, and boy, it's just so great that I just scoot by and that God's forgiven me. Our calling is more than that. We need our conscience to to be developed and honed and maintained and preserved and tuned, fine-tuned, because by it, we start to develop this urge to be pleasing to God. We start to understand, oh, God isn't just after me to, to make me feel bad about the bad things I do, but he actually calls me to a better, more beautiful, fuller life with him. And we need our conscience. Otherwise, we dam up the river. We take God's plan for our life to be in us, to transform us, and we just use it for something else. It is the positive function of conscience that we need to preserve most of all. Am I concerned with pleasing God? Or am I concerned with not disappointing Him? If I'm concerned with pleasing God, I won't be concerned about not disappointing him. And the thing about faith, and the thing that we need, and I just think it's just something, it's something the Lord himself has to do in us. Because like we, we come to understand the facts of faith, that we're forgiven because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That we have standing, justification, that we're transformed because of what he's done. But faith is persisting when I fail in that truth, it's persisting oh, in this, this truth, the Lord, like, I couldn't disappoint you because you're not that kind of a God. And we have, to, we have to come to believe that in such a deep way because only then when we're just like, oh, I understand that I'm safe with my God. He cares for me. Actually, then can I be concerned with pleasing him? And I'm just, I just want to actually just pray in this moment right now because because for so long in my life, pretty much all of my youth, up until I was about 25 years old, I like, was just concerned about disappointing God and never like, had any sense of what it could mean to be pleasing because I was always so guilty all the time. And for, for me, and this is just my, like, this is what God did. The Holy Spirit came into my life and changed that and took that away. And, I, I, and so that's, you know, I, I don't mean to frame my personal experience on, on like, as if this is the only way, but I know it's a way to have faith built up, and to be free from this negative consciousness. So I actually just want to pray for a second. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to do that. Um, actually, and the worship team can come up, because I really got to land this plane. But. Holy Spirit, would you just come? God, I just, I just see so much, even in my own life, Lord, just, 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 just failing after failing after failing, right? Um, 
But your mercy is, is new. It's like a river. It's ever new. It's always washing away the past and refilling with new opportunity, potential, new joy, new peace, new life. Um, God, let me just see that for what it is. I don't need to, I'm not going to run out of you and your grace. But God, instead, I'm invited to something so much better. Holy Spirit, would you convict us, Lord, in the good kind of way of the truth of your word? Lord, would you just set us free from guilt, from shame, from the lies that need to be met with faith, the faith that you have a plan for us and you've washed us, that you freely invite us to come when we're thirsty, take of the river of life, and that river is ever flowing. When I, when I start to, to grasp this, right, when I start to apply that sort of truth in my own life and start to understand what it means to walk by faith, I just become a different kind of person, a freer person. Um, and it's only because, like, I've just stood in a river, only because I stumbled upon the river that God was bringing forward in a dry place and I couldn't have found it except that he brought it there and he put it there and I couldn't enjoy the refreshing of it except if I just crawl into it. Lord, I pray you just make us people who delight in what you're doing, who are refreshed, who enjoy your work, God. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your kindness, Lord. Thank you for all the things that you do. Lord, as we come in and we're just going to take communion together, God, would you just be present here? Would you remind us that, that we stand uh, in the river, the river of your making, Lord, Lord the, the grace and mercy that you've put forward and sent into the land, Lord, and we just, we just keep our feet in that place, God, delighting in you, Lord. Teach us to delight in you, God. Hey, so let's, um, let's come up during this, this worship song and, and we'll gather, um, we'll bring it back to your seat and we'll, we'll take communion together. We'll just remember what the Lord has done and then we're gonna pray for Tom and Gail after that. So um, yeah, we got, a lot, we got a lot to do. All right, so let's do that.